As always, I want to thank you for being here tonight. No, you're good. We'll give them a minute. Hate to break up good fellowship. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. But before we get started tonight, I... Uh, it's nothing bad. It's nothing bad. I want to apologize and clarify something from last week. Uh, as we ended up last week talking about things, we started talking about fruit inspecting. And Larry and I talked a little bit about after that after church. And I really started to think about that statement, that we are to be fruit inspectors. And uh, as the Spirit works, I was like, I don't, I don't know if I like that statement or not. And so I spent like, I don't know, nine hours last Wednesday night studying through the entire Bible on fruit. And what does the Bible say? And so if I was grouchy on Thursday, blame it on Larry. So no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. Uh, because I said that statement, and I've heard that my whole life in church, and I am just not very sure I like that from a biblical standpoint. And so I want to apologize for that statement, and I want to just, before we get started, give you some verses about the whole context of that, because it just, it just really set wrong with me, and I had never thought anything about it, and, and Larry had pointed out, and I thought, I think I agree with him more than I should. No, I'm just kidding. Than I should. No. Uh, and so if you've never heard a pastor apologize, I am doing that. And so, uh, but I want to just give you, because on the back you're probably going, Jake, why did you give us a third sheet with only four little answers on it? Well, I'm glad that you've noticed that. I want to give you some verses to clarify that statement from last week. And while I'm not sure, we should use it. The first is this, from John 15, you can write these down, read them later on your own time, that bearing spiritual fruit in my life should be what is important. Bearing spiritual fruit in my life is what should be important. And the last verse in John 15, you're welcome to flip there, we probably won't have time. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. And so, while I don't like the statement fruit inspector to others, I do think that fruit in our life should be of the utmost importance. I should be worried about the fruit that I am producing to honor the Lord. The second verse I want you to write down is Galatians 5, verses 16 through 20. You can easily know which kind of fruit you are producing. You can know which kind of fruit you are producing. And it goes through that passage of Scripture, and it lists the flesh, and it lists the spirit, the fruit of the spirit, the fruit of the flesh. And so I cannot know your heart, but you can. And so you know if you are producing for the flesh or for the spirit. How do we help our fruit grow and the lives of those around us? In James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, verse 18 says, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. If you want your spiritual fruit to grow and someone else's to grow, you need to be a person of peace, a person that is looking to care for others, not correct others, looking to encourage others, not discourage other. And so, sown in peace by those in peace. Sec next thing I have, I've got like nine of them, so you'll just have to bear with me. Like I said, I was up all night long. Everything that we do, we do in love for God and for those God brings into our lives. In Matthew chapter 18, if you're familiar with that, it talks about the sheep that leaves and the 99 that stays. That is always a reference to lost people, but it's not in the Scriptures. It is actually to a believer who has gone astray and going and rescuing that person and bringing them back. It talks there in chapter 18 about little children, about uh, going to your brother. And so it says there, Even it is not the will of your Father who is heaven that one of these little ones should perish. What the Bible does say, and we quoted this Scripture and we talked about it a little bit last week, from Matthew chapter 7. 
Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Well, what that is talking about is spiritual leaders. If you are going to submit yourself to a local church, which I believe you should, the authority of the Word of God, the authority of the local church, you are to hold your spiritual leaders accountable. That's why in 1 Timothy chapter 3, pastors and deacons are given specific qualifications for how to live. And if you are going to be led, which I believe you should, or I believe Baptists do a terrible job of that, and so does the pastors by leading, you are to hold accountable your spiritual leaders. That's why it says beware of false prophets. Spiritual leaders are not only to be evaluated by their outward fruit, but their teaching. In 1 John chapter 4, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. So a pastor, a person who teaches the Word of God, you are to evaluate their life, and you are to evaluate their teaching. And if you are going to submit yourself to the Word of God that is being taught, those two things have to line up. You say, well, Jake, they're a nice person. What does it matter what they teach? Wrong. Jake, they're a great teacher, but their life is wrong. Wrong. All right? It is a double whammy here. All right? I'm almost done, and then you can disagree with me or throw whatever kind of fruit we have. We should want God to deal with us and then be able to help others. We should be willing that God deals with us and then help others. Matthew chapter 7 verses 1 through 6 talks about not judging, but yet when God allows us to remove the speck from our own eyes, that we are to love and help those that are our brothers. But it goes on and says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. And so we are to love each other enough to love each other and grow together. But Paul also says, like I said, I'm trying to give you an overview of this because I think it's just too simple that we're fruit inspectors. Paul tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians that sin is not supposed to be sought out, but it is only to be addressed when it is public and open. It's not my job to walk through the church on Sunday and be like, Hey, Angie, your dress is too short. Your hair is too short. You know, or whatever people do in church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 through 13, For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. And Paul's talking about the sexual sin of a, a son-in-law sleeping with his mother-in-law. And, and, and so his stepmom. And so it was public, it was bold, but Paul's not saying become the sin police. Go around and see what's in people's kitchen cabinets or in their refrigerators. That's not the intent. But when it's public and it's open, when it's in the front page of the paper, when it's all over Facebook, we are to love each other enough to deal with it. The question that I want to ask you are these two. Are you invested in the lives of other people enough to genuinely care about them? You say, Jake, I come on Sundays, I sit through the service, and I leave. It's not enough. You say, Jake, I come and I sit through Sunday school. It's not enough. Are you investing in the lives of the people you go to church with? Are you willing to sit down and eat a meal with them? Are you willing to go on a mission trip with them? Are you willing to invite them into your home for supper? Because Proverbs 27 says this in verses 5 through 6. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. I said all of that because I want you to hear the heart behind this. Why it's important that we don't do it wrong. Why that we don't just say, well, I'm a fruit inspector, so I'm going to inspect your fruit. That's the wrong heart in my life, and I'm guilty of that. But I want to leave you with one, one warning, and I'll be done. Not with the whole thing. I've got revelations. Some of you are getting your hopes up. Don't harm someone more by not forgiving them when they have asked for forgiveness. This is probably the thing that I see the most that does the greatest damage in this own church is when someone makes a mistake and they ask for forgiveness, people can sometimes not forgive. They act like it still has happened. They won't speak to them in the lobby. 
And what happens is that does more harm to the person than their original sin. Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a person is swallowed up with too much sorrow. Friends, if someone experiences the power of God in their life and we cannot forgive them and welcome them and celebrate with them, we have done more damage to them than when they started. And so I just wanted to clarify that because, like I said, I have never in my life thought about it. I was happy with what I believed, and then the Lord used Larry, and I was just like... Mm-hmm. You're not going to be yeah. Yeah. The end of Matthew chapter eight talks about that. That it's it's bad news. So. Well, the other thing is, in Christian, our focus should be on edification. We're to build up. We're supposed to be building the church, not as a building, but as the people. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, and I even went back and thought about that all week, and I was like, man, that just sounded like that. I don't know. It just bothered me, and so anyway. I wanted to clarify what I think the Bible teaches as a whole and tell you that I was wrong. So, anyway, one for the house, right? No, I'm teasing. But uh, that's what it is. Iron sharpens iron, right? And so, again, thankful for that and was not expecting it. But anyway, I'm glad it happened. So, Revelation Bible Study Week 10. Church at Philadelphia. You have there two pictures. Uh, from the St. Jean Church. Uh, it was an old church. And um, as we're going to look here in this passage of Scripture about the faithful church, it references um, some pillars. And it talks about the pillar of the temple, talking about in heaven. But when the early church was built after this letter came, they used that pillar terminology. And as you can see by this church, it has great big giant pillars. Some people say the church was built before the letter. Others say it was built after the letter. Either way, it doesn't matter. But this church here is, was one of the early churches of this day. If you were to go there today, uh, it's not uh, called Philadelphia. It's uh, Ashkehur or something like that that I can't pronounce. And so, But these are just some pictures of modern-day Philadelphia and not the one stateside. So uh, let's read first. Here in chapter 3, what, Paul, what John says to the church at Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is tree, true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, tonight we thank you that uh, this church that we are studying about was faithful. Lord, while they had little earthly to celebrate, they had much to celebrate in your kingdom. And so, Father, tonight I pray that you would help us be a church that sees not the physical things, but the spiritual things, the spiritual blessings, the spiritual victories. Lord, the, the way that you work and move for eternity and not just for the here and now. Lord, I pray that you'd forgive me. You know my heart, that it can be wicked. Lord, teach me humility. And Lord, that you would be honored in everything that is said or done tonight. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So if you're taking notes tonight, those answers are on the back as always. And so if you just want to fill it in and get credit when you get home, uh, you can do that. But uh, what we see here in verse 7 is a church with a great opportunity. A church with a great opportunity. Look there in verse 7 as we go through this. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. You can find this reference in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah chapter 22 and a reference to how the Lord is dealing with that. But we see here that, that, Paul, that John is telling us about who God is. The fact that He's holy, the fact that He is true. And these are encouraging things for us because when we look at the world around us, holiness is in short supply. Truth is in short supply. But the God that we serve is holy. He is true. That means we know that when He deals with us, He deals with us in perfection. He deals with us in truth. But this next one here, He who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes twice about this. And it's always this idea when God opens the door to do ministry into an area. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now just stop there, because when I think a great door is open, I don't think I want to follow that up with, and there are many adversaries. When a great door is open, Lord, bust it open, let's go, right? Let's, let's do great things. But Paul says, when great opportunities come, we should expect great adversity. In churches, if you want to know one of the greatest moments in church history in your life, you should be expecting for Satan not to quit, not to lay down. Especially, look for these things around Easter. In our church, you can almost always, since I have been here, track problems to big events. When God worked in a youth service, when God worked in the youth mission project, when God worked in an Easter drama, when God worked in a revival meeting, any time that those things, God works and people are saved and lives are changed, you can guarantee, that's why I'm taking the week after vacation, after Easter, I'm in Florida. All right, so whatever Satan brings, it's your problem. No, I'm kidding. That Don't be saying those shepherds abandoned him sheep. I'm just kidding. But I can promise you, if you leave a cold, dead service and the Lord is not, does not seem to be at work and things are not going well, then that's just to be expected many times. But I am telling you, when God begins to work and God begins to open a door, you need to be looking for the adversaries that are going to come. You say, oh, Jake, but I just want everything to be great all the time. Well, go to Joel's church. Don't come here. Because it has problems too. But I'm showing you this because Paul says, for a great and effective door has opened to me. And. He doesn't say but. He says and. He does not ever view the blessings of God in regards to who is opposing him. This is extremely important. I you hear nothing else. Do not let the adversities that you affect, that you face, dictate what you are doing for the Lord. Doesn't matter. Whatever God has allowed to stand against you has no power against Him. No matter what Satan tries to throw against you, no matter what the world tries to come at you again, Paul says the door is open. I'm not worried about it. He says what? But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. He says, I'm going to wait right here and just keep doing what God's asked me to do, and I don't care who likes it or doesn't like it. God has given me this opportunity, and I'm going to take it for the glory of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord. He says, I came to preach and God opened a door. He gave me the opportunity to do ministry into these community. And friends, that's how we should be praying. Lord, open a door that no one can close. Lord, give us opportunities that no one can stop. Father, work and move and bless the labor of our hands because if the Lord doesn't open it, it doesn't get opened. 
If the Lord doesn't make a way, it doesn't get done. And so we see a church with a great opportunity, and that's how you should pray. Lord, help me to have a great opportunity at work to witness to my faith. Lord, help me in my own family have great opportunities to work and to move. And so what we see in this text, though, is some, sometimes people will try to take it even farther and say, well, it's not just about the opportunity that he's talking to each individual person. But yet, if you're very careful here in a few verses, we're going to look at the Lord stands at the door and knocks. And people will say, well, it's not talking about an individual. It's not talking about salvation. It's talking about the church. The Lord is knocking on the door of His church. And I agree with that. And I agree with this, that it's God that opens the opportunity. And so we should be praying that God opens the opportunity for us to share the gospel, to do ministry in our community, knowing that if the Lord doesn't do it, it will not get done. How many of you have ever tried to do something and it just didn't work out? I went to see a lady today, and did you know that the entire interstate from north of Mount Vernon to the Centralia exit is gone? I don't mean just a little bit. I mean it is gone. <laughs> it's completely tore up. And so it just so happened I'm driving along in the middle of a monsoon. My air conditioner went out in my van so the defrost doesn't work. So I'm up there blowing on the window. <laughs> Looking through the rain thinking, this is safe. This is, this is going to be the ticket that gets me in right here. Yeah, and I was like, I'm going to Centralia. It don't matter what happens, I am going. And so I get there to the exit. I'm like, I've made it to the exit. There is no exit. It's gone. It is completely gone. I mean, like you can't just drive over some bumpy stuff. It is gone. And so I'm like, well, I guess I'm going to Salem. You know, I always liked that town. Not really just saying that, but, you know. So then I went back to Sandal and came back around and... uh, I thought, man, that was a lot more difficult than it should have been. But in spiritual things, we need to recognize that it's the Lord who is at work. All we are asked to do is be faithful. We're asked to pray. We're asked to share. We're asked to live out our faith. But it is God who opens the door. It's God who does the convicting. It's God who does the working in the lives of people. Comments, questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not like you can come after a believer on its own. Absolutely. It's got to be funneled. You know, simply through God. Absolutely. Absolutely. And God put limitations on what he could do through his will. He could not kill Job. Absolutely. Well, even in the story of David from Sunday morning about what was in his heart, and First Chronicles says that Satan was allowed to, you know, And so absolutely, the Lord allows those things to test our faith. Uh, The Lord doesn't test us or tempt us, but He wants us to know what's in our heart and to know what is going on for sure. Absolutely. Well, I think that's important because that's why He says He's holy and true. right? He doesn't open the door and hold it open and be wicked. right? That's what you hear from people all the time. Well, there's so much evil in the world. There's so much wrong in the world. And I was reading some quotes from C.S. Lewis. And, you know, C.S. Lewis, uh, before he became the great apologetic and and the great uh, man of the Christian faith, he ran from God. The problem of evil bothered him so much that why is there sickness? Why is there war? Why is there disease? Why is all this in the world if there's a good and loving God? And so uh, that was his mindset for a while. But then as he began to grow and study and the Lord was at work in his heart, he recognized that all of those things were a byproduct of sin. And the Lord works in spite of them. And the Lord doesn't leave us in that sin. And I think it's important when you look at the problems of this world, death is a problem. It's, it's an issue. But yet the Lord came and conquered death. Right? Sickness, heartache, pain, all the things that this world consumes of. Yet in Revelation, we talk about how there's going to be no more sickness, no more pain, no more tears. All those things are gone. If I would have been God, I would have said, you can just have it. But he didn't. He was going to right every wrong. So. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. 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 Second thing I want to show you tonight, and I'm hoping to be done quick tonight. I know I've, I've rambled on the last couple of weeks. Little as much when God is in it. Yes, that's a hard one to figure out. He says in verse 8, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. There in your notes, I put three things that we see that is our responsibility to be faithful. He says, you can't open the door when you can't close it. The first is humility. They recognized they had a little strength. It wasn't them. If you remember these other churches, he talked about how, how much thing they had and how much blessings they have. And you can read back there and, and how some cities were wealthy and some had great this. But here he says, you got a little. A little strength. We see obedience. They have kept His Word and have not denied His name. And so if you want to know what it takes for us to be faithful on our end as a Christian, as a church, we have to be humble. It's not us. Nothing good that comes from this place is because of us. If you were used by God to accomplish it, He gave you the skills needed to do it. And if it was spiritual in nature, He is the only one that gets any credit. And He teaches us that. Obedience. I have to be willing to know the Word of God and believe it, to apply it to my life. And then I've got to be willing to proclaim the Gospel wherever I am. And I think this is the one that most of us struggle with, sharing our faith outside of church. Some people struggle to share their faith at church, but in the workplace. If someone asks you, what does it take to go to heaven? What does the Bible say about this? Or what do you think about that? You have to be willing to proclaim the gospel no matter where you are. Not to deny Him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it says here, verses 7 through 10, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. Paul says, I have been blessed with so much and been given so many scriptures and seen so much in order to stay humble. A thorn in my flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in... What was that word? Weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, the apostle Paul had yielded to the Spirit in a way that I am just not at yet. Because there is very few times in my life when I said, boy, I'm taking pleasure in my infirmities. I am a baby. Why is that person mad? Why is that person talking bad about me? Why is that person not happy? God, God, why is this going on? I am guilty of that. But what we see here from Paul is, if there is a lot going on in your life, it might just be because some pride has snuck into your heart. Some pride has snuck into the church. Some pride has stuck into your family. But if you want the power of God to be on what you are doing, infirmities, infirmities are going to bring you down in spirit. And so he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you want your strength or do you want the Lord's strength? Do you want His power or your power? Because it means I have to die to self humble myself, and trust what the Lord can do. He's teaching us what humility looks like and what it means not to deny the faith. Paul says, I, I know the Lord will take care of it. I know the Lord's going to be with me. I, I know God's been good to me. But yet, I've got to stay humble. And friends, false humility is still pride. 
And, and that happens a lot. I, I can be guilty of it. I hate, I, I hate, and this is going to sound bad, and please don't take it this way, all right? I hate the month of October. It's not because it's Halloween like some of you really strict Christians, all right? It is because it is Pastor Appreciation Month. I hate it. Monica can remember it when she was here. Selena, I hate it. I just want to be left alone. If you want to give me the greatest gift of ever, don't sneak around and take the offering. I try every year to, to deny it. I erase my uh, birthday off the calendar so they can't celebrate it. Uh, it's just one of those weird things that I have. I just hate it. I appreciate it. I love you. But do anything else with it, and I would be blessed. That would be the blessing that you could give me, all right? You don't ever listen. I've just chalked it up that you're Baptist, all right? Part of that is, one, because I have seen so many pastors over the years treat their congregations like they were a lifeline for financial blessings, right? It mattered what they made. It mattered what they drove. I was teasing our staff. They've all bought upgraded vehicles except for me. I'm still driving the same old van I did when I got here, all right? Uh, and I always tease them, but every time I pull up, someone's got a new vehicle out here. I have to park in the back. My stuff's so junky at this point, right? But I just have always struggled with that. I've struggled with watching pastors do that. And so for me, it's one of those things that I don't want anyone to ever think, that's why I do what I do. I mean, I would let you keep your salary if you'd let me. I'll go do something else. Because why? I just struggle with that. It's something I struggle with in my heart, watching that go on. And so for me, I just, I've, I've begged, I've thrown a fit, I've done everything I possibly could do over the last 11 years, and so I've just given up, all right? You've beaten the life out of me. Yes. Pastor, hey, there are some of the people that go here that have got that figured out. No, not you, not you. No, no. But it's just, it's, a, it's something I struggle with. And some of it is just, it's, it's Satan struggles with, I really don't deserve it, right? I, you know, you, you look at your own faults and your own failures, and, and you think, boy... And then part of I struggle with every October is, well, you know, there are some people out here that probably don't think it's that much of an appreciation. And so it's kind of like rubbing salt on a wound because not everyone, I don't know if you know this or not, that goes to church here likes you or me, right? You know that, right? And so I struggle with that. And so Paul, he did it for the right reasons, all right? He did it because he wanted God's power on his life. He wanted God to work through him. I just want to be left alone. All right, it's not spiritual like Paul. It's just, it's something I struggle with. Now, you, I know you're going to disagree with me. That's all right. I got the floor. You can ask questions later. But it's just something I struggle with, all right? And that's being honest with you. Someone said, Jake, you're way too honest with us. You get what you pay for, right? So, no, it was just a joke. Come on. All right, now that I've made it. No, yes, yes. I threatened to quit one year if I got a raise. That. That was not pleasant um, for anybody. I can make myself out to be a pretty big horse's behind if you didn't know that or not. Not an amen anywhere, huh? I just knew I'd get one. My wife's not here tonight. So, no. So humility got sidetracked. I'm sorry. Humility and, and proclaiming the gospel. But don't miss that middle one there. Obedience. It's something that you and I have to strive for, knowing that we will never be perfect but that we should obey the Word of God. Psalm 119, verse 11 says it like this, Your Word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. You have to know the Word of God if you're going to listen to the Word of God, if you're going to obey the Word of God. That's why I started out with this tonight, because what does the Word actually say? What does the Bible say? It's something I've heard, it's something I've quoted, it's something that I've read, but yet, what does it say. How am I going to know how to love my wife if I don't know what the Bible says about being a husband? How am I going to know what the Bible says about being a father if I don't know what the Bible says? How are we going to be a church that knows how to love each other if we don't know what the Bible says? How are we going to help the poor or the immigrant? Or how are we going to stand for marriage? And all of these things if we do not know what the Bible says. That has been one of my commitments this year has been to try to answer everything with Scripture. If there's a disagreement, if there's a problem, if there's a question, 
quote the scripture. You know, if you're going to quote the scripture, you either better memorize it or you better have Google, all right? And there's nothing wrong with using Google. What does the Bible say about whatever the topic is, all right? And then search the 250 scriptures that it talks about. You don't have to memorize the whole Bible. You should memorize scripture. But many times we take our lack of knowledge of what the Bible says to not use it. But friends, you ought to be willing to say, hey, I'm not sure what the Bible says about that, but I'll find out. It's okay. Sometimes people say, hey, Jake, what does uh, Psalms 111 say, uh, verse 4? I don't know. I don't know. I don't have the whole book of Psalms memorized. I do good to have the Romans road memorized sometimes. And that's okay. But we ought to be studying it. We ought to be learning it. We ought to understand that this Word of God that the Spirit uses is what keeps us from sin. If you want to know how this church can thrive in the days to come, right here. It's standing on this book, knowing what it says, believing what it says, applying what it says, hiding it in our heart. It's a game changer. Why? Because it's a sharp two-edged sword. It never returns void. The Bible says the grass withers and the flowers fadeth, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Your opinions will change. Your thoughts will change. But this book never changes. It is the foundation of everything we believe and hold to. Questions? Thoughts? Super. (laughs) We must never forget that God is at work in His church. We must never forget that God is at work in His church. I always make it awkward when I talk about the pastor appreciation thing, so I knew it'd get quiet after that. Starting in verse 9. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie indeed. I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. And I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. There are a couple things that we see from this. One, he says that There are people who think they're of God, who claim to be of God, but he says they're not. And I know who they are. So you might have everyone fooled that you're a member of this church and a member of the family of God, but you might just be the first one. The Lord knows. The Lord knows who is His in His church. And He says, I will come and make them worship before your feet. Now, sometimes people say, well, look, we're going to be worshiped. No, 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 no you are going to be watching while they worship Him. It doesn't say worship you at your feet. It's kind of like if I was to bend down in front of David, but I was looking over there, I'm in front of Him, I'm before Him, but He is not the object of my focus. Jesus is the one that every knee shall bow to, that every tongue shall confess. But He's saying is, friends, you're going to know on that day. And that's kind of a bittersweet thing, right? Because one... It means that they are going to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. But two, it's going to show us that, hey, all those problems they caused in the church, all those problems they caused in my life, that's why. They really weren't His. And so we need to be reminded of this, that He's just teaching us here that we're going to understand it better by and by. We we don't know everything now, but at some point we will understand more. And I think it's meant to encourage us not to give us some sense of vengeance, which I thought when I first read it, I'm like, yeah, at my feet. But that's not what it's talking about. They're going to worship Him and we're going to know it. So for a believer, that causes us great joy because we want everyone to worship Jesus. He's worthy of it, amen? He's worthy of praise. But yet He says it's for their judgment. But He goes on and says, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now this is a kind of tricky verse depending on what you believe. Some people, like I, 
It's the Lord talking that they will not go through the tribulation period that affects the whole world. What I believe He is talking to this individual church and churches in general, that the rapture of the church will happen, the seven-year period of the tribulation will occur. He is promising them that. Others say that it's just a different persecution, but the problem with that is the whole world. Right? If this town was to fall under persecution, even the Roman government didn't control the whole world. So some commentators view it as the great persecution from Roman Empire and the Roman emperors, and others view it as the other. Which it is depends on which view you hold. I hold the one. That's the way I read it. Because it says, Behold, I am coming quickly. He says, You're going to avoid the judgment. And why are you going to avoid this worldwide judgment? Because I'm coming to get you. And so he teaches us here that this church, while they have, have dealt with the false believers, while they have had their own struggles, behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Now here again, like we looked last time, some people would say, so other people can take your salvation from you. No. He is warning you. He is warning me that our faith should be pursued. That we ought to live out our faith. It's just a general warning in the negative sense, just like about the name being blotted out. It's not saying that someone can take your salvation from you. I can't go to someone and say, I don't like you, you don't get to go to heaven. That's not what we believe. We don't have the keys to Hades and death. And, and, and what we loosen on earth is not bound in heaven like uh, some churches teach, that I can excommunicate you from the kingdom of heaven. That's not what we believe. He is just saying that don't let yourself be tripped up by the things of this world. Don't let the temptations that come into your life prove that you were never truly a part of the family of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 says it like this, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. He says, I am going to do what God has asked me to do, the Christian faith is not some crazy flailing around thing. It is a disciplined walk with the Lord. Spiritual discipline. I'm reading the Scriptures. I'm, I'm staying away from sinful situations. I'm growing in my faith. I'm attending worship. I am disciplining myself to be who God wants me to be so He can use me on the journey that He has me on. Questions, comments, discussions? I even put it in there for you again this week. Comments or questions? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think that's why Paul writes in First Thessalonians chapter four, and then because why they were struggling with that. Have we missed it? Have we done something wrong? What What is going on in our life? But yes, we know that this book is to each individual church. It is into the church as a whole, as well. And so, absolutely.
Well, like I said, I do disagree. I believe in a, a rapture, seven-year tribulation. But yeah. The thing is, it is the whole part of that rapture. And I actually told this is one of the, one of the benefits of, of this thing is it caused me to go deeper. Mm-hmm. I pulled Schofield to write me the Bible. I disagree with his whole premise on that because he's saying the Bible means the Bible is divided up. So it means just for the Jews, parts of the Bible are for the Gentiles. I do too. Yeah. 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 I think I probably didn't think about it as much until I started preaching through the minor prophets and Mm -hmm. all of the promises that you see in those minor prophets. So many of them are about the messianic promises and the kingdom and the dealing with the Jewish people and how that thousand-year reign needs to be set up. And and so I think for me, I just reinforced my belief more in the fact that God is going to deal specifically with the Jewish people and He is going to work through them. And if the church is still here, that is, is a problem, right? It takes the focus off who they are. And so while I don't agree with Schofield either on a lot of that stuff, uh, like I said, I think uh, that there is an overwhelming support of Scripture uh, that can teach the rapture in the sense that it is, even in regards to when Jesus comes, but yet uh, it talks one time about him coming to the earth. And, it, and we're going to look at that, by the way, here in a couple chapters and, and go through the three views kind of like we did when we started this book. And if you don't have those notes, you can flip to the very beginning and look at the seven big events that we talked about. But I would want to end that on a bank. Oh. Because of that, Yeah. Always want to study the scriptures. For sure. yeah, I, mean, I really don't know exactly what model. I understand. Maybe there's a third, you know, uh, another one that we haven't even considered, but yet yeah. I'm not going to dig my heels into all oh, that's got to be this. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It's going to be what God, God reveals. Absolutely. Any other questions? All right, last purpose. God has a purpose and plan for the future. God has a purpose and plan for the future. So many times we get so discouraged in the present that we forget that God has a purpose and a plan. That it's not surprising Him. It's not catching Him off guard. He says, He who overcomes, I will make Him a pillar. There's that pillar that we saw, the picture, the reference, why they did what they did, of my God. And He shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There are two times in the book of Revelation where it talks about this idea of a new name uh, written on someone. In Revelation chapter 22, it talks about in verses 1 through 5, And he showed me a pure river of life, Clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. Amen. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve them. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. There will be no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. It teaches us here this imagery. I don't know if you'll have Jesus stamped on your forehead. I don't think that's what he's teaching here maybe. But he's teaching that only those who have his name will be in heaven. Only those whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And that's why he says that he will put that on them. It's this idea in this day and age of something permanent, right? It's something that cannot be taken away. It's something that in pagan worship, and and I won't get into what the book book of Leviticus says or anything like that, but who you worshipped is who you tattooed on you. If you worship the sun god in ancient Israel, they would carve and make that onto you. If you worship something else, that's what they would. And that is how you were identified by if you know anything about the, the Old Testament, the Lord says, I'm not made in hands, I work, you know, anyway. And so what he's skimming in this idea is he's permanently marking them. That they are his. That they belong to him. That they will be with him forever. It's something that is encouraging, not something that you need to worry about covering with your foundation. 
Because the exact opposite is said about those who deny Him in Revelation chapter 13. Talking about those who deny Him. Revelation chapter 13 says, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. You say, Jake, what does that exactly mean? I don't know for sure, but we'll talk about it when we get to Revelation 13. All right? So you are either known by the Lord's name or the one that is against the Lord. There is no other category. But what Jesus is trying to encourage them with is that He's talking about the new Jerusalem, the city of God, which comes down out of heaven. And so that's a, revel- that's a, a, a reference to what? Revelation 21. The new heavens and new earth. That is why I think it is very important that when you look at the verse that we were just talking about, about Him coming quickly, this, the weight of that then turns right into what? New heaven, new earth. It kind of goes into this end times picture of the Lord takes us, the Lord makes it right, and then we experience this new heaven and new earth. Others would say, no, it's all put together. So it happens all at the same time. But either way, whatever you believe, He's telling this that He knows us. That we are identified as His. And if you don't know Him, you're identified as the enemy. And there is no other way around it. There is one name under heaven by which we must be saved. There is one way to get there. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father except through the Son. And so there are two classes of people in eternity. Those who belong to the Lord... Those who don't. And if you've ever read the punishment for those who don't, the Bible says they will be thrown into the lake of fire. And then, after I believe the thousand-year reign, when Satan is released, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. And so those of us will experience the new heaven and new earth for all of eternity, while those who die apart from Jesus will experience the punishment of eternal damnation forever. And he's telling them here, I know you, I've claimed you, and you are mine. That's all I got. Ten minutes early. Questions? Comments? Look at